All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Retic Lounge. We are doing another species spotlight for you guys tonight. Um, this is one that I'm super interested in. Uh, this is an animal that I always like holding at shows. Like it's one of the animals that always catches my eyes when I'm at a zoo, at a show, wherever, um, that has carpet pythons. And Lucas and I thought of no better person to have on to talk with us tonight than our friend Riley Jimison of Riley's Reptiles. Lucas, yeah. is there anything you want to add? No, I just I'm excited for this one. I think that uh, when it comes to the whole like Morelia complex, I'm like extremely fascinated by them. And carpet pythons just seem again a little ignorant here. I, I had when I was growing up, I had a coastal carpet that I bought at a pet store. Um, and had that snake for about three, four years. And then before I moved off to college, I rehomed it. Uh, and so I, I don't know. I just, I think that they're really awesome animals. And from my limited understanding, I, they're like a really great entry level snake that is like a larger size, but I guess we'll get Riley to kind of confirm that, but yeah. And I mean, almost, almost what you would expect people to get into before the whole, uh, super dwarf craze. Right. Um, right. But I mean, a big part of my recovery after surgery was just listening to NPR. So, I mean, I got to learn a little bit about these guys. And then when I got to see them in person, it was just a little bit more appreciation. So hopefully Riley can shed a little bit more light tonight. Yeah. Before we jump in and bring Riley on, just want to remind you guys, if you guys are not subscribed and you're running into this channel because, you know, you might be subscribed to Riley's content, um, or, you know, you're, you're in the carpet world and want to hear this episode, um, hit the subscribe button for us, hit that like button, drop some comments down below. And, uh, always, we want to give a huge shout out to our Patreon fans. You guys rock. Um, the, we've gotten a few new members over the last week and it's been great having our discord just kind of popping and going off. Um, I know I had Friday off and so I got to be very active on it on Friday. That was a lot of fun. So, um, if you guys are interested, we have that link that's right down below patreon.com forward slash the retic lounge. And, um, by far, I think one of the most active, uh, Patreon or discords out there associated with the Patreon. And, um, yeah, yeah. For, our, for our, retics for sure. <laughs> yeah. Retics for sure. I don't, I don't know too many other. Retic I, I was going to say discord and Patreon I, uh, comedians, they blow us out of the water. Oh yeah. No, I reptile related, but, but yeah, totally. Um, all right, yeah, let's go ahead and get Riley on here. Whether you're just getting into retics or you've been breeding for years, the first place you want to visit is Stewart Design. More and more breeders keep showing up at shows, on Morph Market, and are all over social media. Sometimes it may feel possible to get anyone's attention. Stewart Designs help small businesses like yours do big things through brand clarity, helping entrepreneurs to start and scale businesses that are easy to know and love. Their work can help any company or industry, but they've done a ton of work for ours. Stewart Design created the brands for US Arc, Canova, Reach Out Reptiles, Coiled, and dozens of other well-known reptile breeders. Like many of us, the owner of Stewart Design, Blake, is a keeper and breeder who fell in love with retics through first working with Garrett Hartle. Although Stewart Design does a lot of corporate work, Blake has a passion for working with people in the reptile industry. Stewart Design can help if you're just getting started or you're ready to take things to the next level, you're struggling to stand out and build your presence online or at shows, you don't want to be like the other guys or get lost in the crowd, and you want to make your own way doing what you love. And also, you have 
big ideas and know your business is special, but you need help sharing it with the reptile community. If something here resonates with you, reach out to Blake and have a conversation. To learn more or get started, visit stuartdesignbrands.com or call them at 855-SD-LOGOS. Clear brands own markets. Stuart Design helps create them. If you are in the market for an enclosure for your reticulated python or any other one of your reptiles, Focus Cubed Habitats is your one-stop shop for not only the best-looking cages on the market, but also provide amazing features and add-ons to your cages. We partnered with Focus Cubed Habitats because they continue to innovate and change the way we house our animals unlike any other caging company out there. Their cages are designed intelligently and provide the most stylish and secure housing for your animal's comfort and well-being. Visit FocusCubedHabitats.com for your animal's caging needs. Again, visit FocusCubedHabitats.com for some amazing and stylish enclosures. We also want to thank VivTech Products for being an affiliate sponsor of the Retic Lounge. Stop by VivTech Products for the best UV spectrum lighting on the market that will enhance and improve your snake's overall well-being and health. Visit VivTechProducts.com and use the code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Again, visit VivTechProducts.com and use our affiliate code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Looking for the perfect accessories for your hatchlings or juvenile retics? Look no further than Heli Guy Serpents. Our sponsor, Chris Sexton, is coming in hot with an amazing 3D printer creating top-notch perches and other caging accessories for your beloved pets. Enrich your retics environment with their high-quality products. Use our promo code TRL10 for a 10% discount on your purchase. Visit them today at heliguyserpents.com and start giving your pets the best. Heliguy Serpents, the premier source for 3D-printed caging accessories. Again, that's www dot heliguyserpents.com and use our promo code TRL10 for 10% off all of your 3D printed accessories today. Hey, Riley. There he is. What up? How we doing? What's going on, man? Doing good, man. I like the shirt. Oh, yeah. Gotta, gotta pull one out once in a while. Oh, I, geez. I, I, I wear them sparingly because otherwise they'll fade from just years of abuse and wash and i like to uh keep them as long as i can but i've i've got an accumulation of some that are hitting like two decades old that probably need to be uh turned into a quilt in order for right. preservation to occur at this point i i turn all of my <laughs> old uh death core shirts into like just cutoffs for the gym or whatever once they start ripping oh yeah that's true the armpit holes always start first and then you're like well sleeves gotta go makes sense Either right. that or right around the collar, but we're here. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I saw the metal <laughs> shirt and I'm like, ah, okay. He's one after my heart. <laughs> uh, Riley, man, appreciate you coming on. Oh, I appreciate you guys having me. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. Um, short notice too. called you up. I think it was on Thursday and was like, Hey, you want to record this weekend? You're like, sure. So always appreciate the, the short notice flexibility and willingness and, um, yeah, I think I've gotten to know you over like the last eight to 10 months through MJ's Patreon um, yep. and, you know, the chat that we have going on and uh, your your carpets are just absolutely phenomenal. And, and you know, I 
probably couldn't think of anyone else that I want to come on here to do carpet. So I'm really excited to jump into that. But before we do that, let's go ahead for our listeners that, you know, maybe haven't heard of you kind of talk about yourself and, and, you know, how you got into snakes and your, your love passion for carpets when that started all that good stuff. Yeah. So, um, like many folks as a kid, I was that, uh, dinosaur obsessed, you know, at like that five year age or whatever. So there's photos of me wearing like t-shirts with like all the different dinosaurs and stuff while my friends are wearing like niner shirts and stuff like that um pop quiz what's like, your favorite dinosaur i think ankylosaur the dudes okay, cool. that are kind of like the tortoise with the swinging club nobody ever talks about them they're an underdog to me that's like the herbivorous honey badger of dinosaurs that right. nobody wants to mess with yeah my daughter my daughter likes the ankylosaurus um yeah. that's my favorite skeleton to see at the natural history museum oh it's oh, really? just cool. so like other than the the big plates on a stegosaur or the the big you know frill and horns on a, a triceratops like that's a really unique biological design right. a very successful design attempt in my opinion <laughs> right anyways continue sorry to interrupt <laughs> but yeah so dinosaur obsessed as a kid and then not by like any real um, natural like train through my family or anything. I spontaneously had this love of reptiles, right? It's not like uh, somebody else in my family got me into it. My mom's always been a, a huge uh, animal lover. We've always had dogs, cats, you know, horses around. Like, I grew up around horses with my mom and I don't ride them because I've been stepped on enough times, falling off Clydesdales. I'm just like, oh, good man, those are dangerous. Um, and so when I was around eight, I think I was pestering them for a snake and, uh, it took a full year of going to the library every Tuesday with my dad and proving that it wasn't just a passing fad and like doing research and showing how, like I was genuinely interested. And then somewhere between like my ninth and 10th birthday or something like that, my dad got me a, a California King snake and a, nice. a herpetology book and and the rest was history and you know granted back then i didn't know anything about husbandry i kept a thing on blue and green colored place and <laughs> you know just in in my place and the thing got out every couple of weeks because back then the the tanks didn't have any latches the slides just you know scotch tape was as good as i could get and it would disappear for weeks or months at a time and then i'd find it in the neighbor's yard one time it fell off the neighbor's roof and landed on her and freaked her oh out oh my gosh ran and scooped it up was like there he is sweet and ran home <laughs> was like cool awesome That's um, awesome. and then you know one day he got out and that was his his last houdini and you know i like to think that being a native he uh he had another 20 years of living in south bay marsh area hunting mice and doing well so that was what really kicked it off and then uh you know growing up always had animals around the house like everything bearded dragons leopard geckos at one point like birds rabbits dogs like cats everything freaking zoo i have to ask uh, because we're around the same age did you have any of the import iguanas from back then no 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 i I, I was not I was not down with like going after big lizards and those things still intimidated me at the time like I wasn't fully fledged like into my obsession like bigger things like that I was just kind of like oh no I don't trust you 
I think my parents naively like bought them just because they were babies when when the pet store had them. People still do to this day, man. Like they yep. still do. Yep. But uh, yeah, I, somewhere uh... along the line, I I avoided some of those uh, mistakes. But we had a, a bearded dragon that ended up uh, turned out she was a female, and my brother's older brother at the time was getting into reptiles and this was late 90s and uh we loaned him our female bearded dragon because he had a male and he bred her and then one day invited us over to his uh family's mechanic shop where he kept his reptiles for us to go see the babies and i have a terrible memory throughout my entire childhood but i do remember going into this mechanic shop seeing a tank of you know, a couple dozen baby beardies and just scooping like a grip of them in my hands and just being fully exposed to something completely new that I'd only seen in books and on TV. And I also remember looking across the shop and seeing a big wooden cage that he made with a big yellow and white snake. So, you know, he had, you know, an albino berm presumably or something at that point too, which thinking back about the time, that's kind of badass. Um, How old were you? Roughly. Probably nine. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, nine or ten. What a cool experience. Um, yeah, and, and I don't, you know, it was a long time after that where that sort of kind of fell to the wayside and then returned. And in college, when I finally was on on my own, I was getting more things. I, I rescued a Chinese water dragon from a family that didn't know what they were doing and took it upon myself to you know, nurse this thing back to health. It had a broken leg. It was missing most of its face and all of its tail. And eight years later, it had rebounded into this big, beautiful, majestic thing as best as it could. And uh, I learned a lot in that process. And um, it was right around the time when I was getting out of college where I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I I started volunteering at the zoo. So when that happened, it was around college time? the water dragon thing yeah yeah i was i was actively in college okay because i was gonna say i mean but you had it even so if you had it for seven eight years you know before it blossomed into this thing i mean that just goes to shit like rehabbing an animal like that as a teenager and kid like obviously i think weighs a lot and like you're like just you geeked out on reptiles you read about them about them you I went hardcore. My my roommates at, at that place were super down. They were cool with it. Like they didn't care. They thought it was awesome. So I, you know, I brought them home with what they had, which was not adequate. And uh, mm-hmm. and basically transformed his enclosure into something that I could and built a waterfall. Like I got tiles, smash it up, cornered it silicone it built it in this thing put a pump in silicone to hold trough so there's big water like it was a really long 40 gallon that was narrow and short so it was really shitty uh, but like i drilled holes in the ceiling i hung lights i did all this shit and like i pissed off the landlord and i didn't care because i was in college like i'm not getting this closet anyway so <laughs> i just went ham right and then one day I was like, screw this. I'm I'm going to get him an even bigger cage. So I drove down to the Vision Cages warehouse in LA and picked up, you know, what I thought was big at the time. Uh, I now know you can go much bigger, but it was a four by two by two that I still have. And this water dragon, they're supposed to have a tail that is three times the length of their, their snout to vent length, roughly. And he had a tail that was the same length as his snout to vent length because so much was missing. 
And uh, because he had an old, clearly self-healed and properly broken leg, his mobility wasn't great. So a four by two by two was perfect. Like he couldn't, he couldn't run. He couldn't do crazy swimming. But that dude was climbing up a log and belly flopping into his water bowl by the time he was big and had the, all the abalone colored scales on his on his throat. and was just gorgeous, man. And that's uh, the best part he, about those water dragons. Dude, they're awesome. Yeah. You know, you can't really get them anymore. They just went sideways and the main export out of Vietnam, the main spot where they were bringing them in is like, so you're going to see uh, very few water dragons from here on out. Can we, can right, we still well, buy Captain Red ones? Yes. Yeah, yeah, but the importation is going to be very sparse. Yeah, so you, you I, heard it here first, folks. I mean, water dragons—they're their price. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. We're going to start to see that price increase if people can successfully. And honestly, like if you know what you're getting into, they're the best alternative for an iguana that people could ask for. Okay, it's like a small one, but because iguanas anyway, are not good alternatives for most people, anyways. I've gotten more stitches from iguanas than anything else in my life. We're we're gonna talk about your 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 bite and stitch history here in a bit because you're pretty notorious <laughs> for getting rocked. Before we get too far away, though, you were talking about volunteering at the zoo. I want to hear more about that. Yeah, so that was actually how I got into that career. For you know the nearly ten years I did it, I started while I was working at a UPS store in uh, Montecito, right on the edge of Santa Barbara, and I was two weeks out from packing my stuff up and moving home because I was like, you know broke i can't afford to live here and uh i was volunteering there i had at that point been volunteering for about a year and a half and i put in a full day and a half day every week helping on the bird and reptile lines to the point where i was so consistent and reliable and you know kind of knew what they would do themselves that they started giving me volunteer keys and just like giving me radios and treat me like one of them to the point where as a volunteer i helped out with you know an alligator exam and then uh, they knew I was, I think they knew that I was having to leave. And so they offered me an apprenticeship. And then I spent six years working in the reptile department there. Um, by the time I had left, I was the main venomous person training incoming venomous keepers, doing all the refresher courses. Um, we worked with uh, a camera company that had all the red cameras and FLIR come out. We did some amazing like nine 900 and something frame per second like heat video of like some pit vipers striking mice and That's i cool. bred a super rare and critically endangered uh fully aquatic box turtle from mexico that i think is extinct in the wild um i just dove full in man like i didn't go home for christmas or thanksgiving or anything for like the first four years and i was like y'all can come see me otherwise this is my home and this is my life and i just I dove full in and uh, I, that was when I was like 21, 22. And so it was just like the, the time of my life. I just, I lived a block away from the bar. I biked and skateboarded to work every day and it, like, you know, lived on the beach. Life was better. Um, but uh, yeah, then uh, I met my now wife who moved to Sacramento, got into the zoo there. And then uh, three years ago or a little over that, took an opportunity to manage GX3 reptiles for my boss, Grant, here in town. And uh, Is that what you're currently at. doing? Yep, yep. So my wife is a supervisor at the Sacramento Zoo still. She manages uh, the ungulates and carnivores and stuff. Dude, and um, she's into animals like you? That's freaking, man, that is that's yeah. picture perfect right there. 
it's it's totally like power couple status the 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 downside is um as you you very well may know animals don't care about holidays weekends birthdays or family emergencies so you're kind of at their mercy and uh in order to be fair to every employee and whatnot nobody ever has saturday sunday weekends everybody is there on thursday and there's alternating chunks of this is your weekend, this is your weekend, this is your weekend, and it's arranged in such a time or in such a way that there's enough coverage on every line and sector so that there's always coverage and that everybody is given as fair and equal shot to time off as possible. And every zoo has their own methodology of how that shakes out. But everywhere I've gone, that's kind of, you know, the the footprint that makes the most sense. So, um, but yeah, so she does that. So of course, naturally, our house is a zoo. Cats, tortoises. We've had guinea pigs, frogs. I somehow found myself bringing home a box turtle this year, like the snake room, geckos, and you know whatever. Um, but yeah, that's, it's fun. That's, that's my dream home. I, I just got a wife who yeah. handcuffs me. She's like, if you, if you don't have any more, she's like, if you don't have any more room in the garage, that's it. Yep. Yeah, so it's uh, it's never boring, that's for sure. Never a dull moment. We've got tons of stories, you know. Like, if you put put one of us on the spot, we could probably find one and then snowball into others. But, like, it's usually we realize in reflection how wild our careers and lives are when we're, like, you know, catching up with family or something like that. Because to us, it's just another day, um, which sounds really kind of rude to say. <laughs> but, uh yeah, I mean, like, well, it's, it's a lot of people's dreams. And what I love hearing about your story is like your passion ignited as a child, like 99% of us that, you know, at least most of the people we have on here, but like, you just like you full sent and you and you did it like you, you did the childhood dream that like most of us had. <laughs> um, I, you know, that's, that's a pretty, I think cool that's part. how you got to do it. I think that's how you got to do it. Like there are late bloomers who find it later in life. And, you know, like in their 20s, and they're like, wow, I used to be scared of these things. And and they go on that and that's amazing that's a beautiful story but right yeah man i um i i skateboarded my entire life from the time i was seven and determined to land my first heel flip to the time i was 22 years old and i decided that i needed to make a decision that it, it either came to zookeeping or skateboarding because the first time i had to Hop into a tortoise yard on an ankle that had torn all the ligaments and tendons and it was held together with a brace and then carry a tortoise back Ooh. and work on said nope. foot for a month. It was like, this is not the jam. Um, and so I, I kind of just, I stopped skateboarding when I took too many varial flips to the nuts. That's when yeah, I that, was like, we're that done. trick is prone for that. Yeah. That's, that's when I was like, we're, we're, we're done. I, it, it was just yeah. one of those things where I was like, I'll, I'll put these away. Yeah, I was long yeah. for the bulls landing on my ass and breaking my tailbone. So that <laughs> oh. was enough for me. I was like, all right, I'll switch to a longboard and just yeah. stay on the ground. I've, my mom was never one to uh, rush us to ER or urgent care or anything. So all of the majority of my injuries, unless severe, were pretty unconfirmed. So, you know, thumbs being jammed into hands, broken wrists, concussions. So your history ankle. of injuries came well before the reptile injuries yeah yeah when i was eight and nine years old my brother and i lived in this place with my mom that had a separate garage that they converted into the master suite and in the back was this big ass tree and it would rain all sorts of leaves all over the houses so there was just a uh, a ladder up there year round to make sure there was always easy access to clean the gutters and the roof well that was 
awesome for us because we realized we could skateboard off the fucking roof. <laughs> and we did. I'm sure your parents time. loved that. That's yeah, awesome. my my mom and dad split up when I was five, so we definitely gave all the gray hairs to my mom very early <laughs> as a single mother um, with two absolute hellions. My brother would break his wrist seemingly like every some or every winter snowboarding i would you know get concussed doing shit or skateboarding like call her mom in the hospital you know whatever it is it just never ended and so she i think she was really grateful to learn that uh when i got in the zoo it also meant that i was backing off from that which in hindsight is probably good because uh, <laughs> i like having a job right right and i mean you know, I, we talked about following your dreams and, you know, I'm not here to try to crush anyone's dream, but you know, I, I still got friends back at home that are in their thirties still trying to pursue the skateboard thing. And I'm like, eh. yeah, it's tough, man. It's, it's one in a million. And I mean, it's cool it's that it's now an Olympic sport and it's respected right. more and more and around the world is growing, but it's just like becoming a, you know, an NFL athlete or anything else you know it's the top one percent of the top one percent so right you know go go for your dreams but if you don't make it you know don't feel bad about you know looking in another direction because that i struggled with for a long time i struggled with accepting that i was not as good as some of my friends that were naturally gifted getting sponsored and going on world trips and you know all these things and i was just doing the thing busting my ass at the park like a bum so yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to, to, you know, hang up the cleats. Like I had an opportunity to go to an independent professional baseball league after college, but with the way that my knee was after a surgery, senior year of high school, I was like, am I really going to just try to drag this out as an adult, mm. you know, to, to get paid? Like, man, I think one of the like $960 every two weeks. Oof. Right. And it's like, oh, oh, don't don't worry, though. They give you they, they pay for your meals when you're traveling to games. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> it's it just one, one of those things where you got to just stomach it and just say, you know, it's time. Yeah. Um, zookeeping is a lot like that. Oddly enough, to transition back to that, <laughs> zookeeping can quite often be like that. I I would say it's the top one percent that. By a combination of luck and timing and other variables out of your control some people find a way to put themselves in a position to climb the ropes into supervisor and upper management and, and get into retirement but it's not not everybody and not every zoo is going to do that because you're ultimately a limited field position uh, a, a field of positions with a lot of people trying to get in so you're at the mercy yeah. of people retiring um, you know yeah, moving I, I on was... things like that I would assume and if you're working at a zoo, you got love and passion for animals. And once you get to a position where you're supervising or, you know, you work your way up, they're paying you a decent amount for you to be able to live. Like I wouldn't want to leave that position. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, it seems that like at the, the one, two, three keeper levels, you know, uh, apprentice normal and senior, however they phrase it at different facilities, a lot of places, those types of keepers have second jobs and live with roommates and rent, especially if you were like us in Santa Barbara. I at one point had three jobs and four roommates. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, but and, it's. And, uh, you could, and you could afford under a bridge. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, man, I lived in a, a garage for a couple of years. Um, 
while I was growing my 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 Morelia love. Oddly enough, uh, it was a converted garage. <laughs> that was when I was also still uh, sort of letting go of skateboarding. But um, yeah, man, it's it's one of those things that you just you know unless you can make it into supervisor deal, you just it's a chapter of your life that you accept and have fun. And and then a lot of us grow into something else and it, it makes for wonderful reminiscing stories and great memories in the future. Oh, I bet. Um, let's talk about the garage days and when your, your Morelia stuff started coming up, how old were you around then? And, and, you know, where did you, you know, where'd you first, you know, come across Morelia and what, what was your first reaction on? Obviously it's something that you're, you're obsessed with now. Yeah, I know exactly where I was. So I was living in that garage. Um, I, at the time, had my Blacktail Crebo, my Rainbow Boa, and then a small, very small, like eight maybe animals of ball pythons. And uh, at that point, the Water Dragon had aged and passed on. Um, and... I was looking for a second job. I found this guy listening on Craigslist that he needed help once a week taking care of his his reptile collection. I was like, oh, lucky stars. But it was like an hour and 10 away up the freeway. I was like, yeah. you know, at the time, gas was not crazy like it is. So I was like, all right, I'll do it once a week. You know, and we negotiated that he ended up sort of like paying my like 250 bucks a visit sort of a deal. So I was like, hell yeah, this is great. And the first time I walked into his reptile room, uh, I remember looking in a boa file cage and seeing his uh, his big adult female jungle that he had at the time staring back at me, uh, just intent, big muscly head, jet black eyes. I love that, that about them. Quintessential black and yellow, and I was hooked. Just yeah. hooked, man. Um, I was still intimidated by them at the time. I, I had come under that reputation that these things were a little bit defensive and bitey. Not the really blown out reputation that they get 10 feet and they're monsters and they never grow out of it sort of thing. But I had I had a little bit of understanding that these things were they're from Australia. They don't mess around. Um, right. Yeah. And so slowly working with a couple clutches of juveniles that this guy had acquired and some some other animals, um, I got to know the, the animals specifically and how they behave and move and react and respond because he sort of would just leave me to his devices. And... Uh, that ended up, you know, lasting about a year or so before uh, he kind of fell on hard times and wasn't able to pay me. We'll just say, we'll leave it at that. Um, but I, you know, hooks were in. So um, at that point, I'm, you know, working at the zoo. I'm 22, 23, um, and I'm realizing that I need to start amassing some of these. So I start you know, getting some here, there, I start meeting some of my friends that I'm still very close with today, uh, like Tony Dorr, Brandon Wheeler, Terrell Ziegler, uh, Andy Ray, um, well, so there's like the Cusco, Brian Cusco was in that whole window, Travis Johnson, like this whole yeah. amalgam of people between like where I was at in Santa Barbara and Brian in the Tascadero and like Travis and then the SoCal group and Simi Valley, like we just sort of all six or seven of us just kind of converged all at the same time, became good friends at the same time. And um, yeah, you know, as, as good reptile friends do, you sort of rub off on one another, you get inspired by their love of something, 
and you, you test the waters or you expand something that you're already involved in. And I just went, you know, even further into Morelia because of Travis a lot, because he was plugged in with Nick Mutton already. He was, you know, decades into Morelia already. He'd started at 13 with Brandon. They grew up together. They got into it. So I, I remember spending till three, four in the morning sitting in Travis's snake room at times when we'd go up there and we started a carpet fest chapter and we'd all just sit there and talk stories all night. And he has all sorts of boas and bull snakes and everything else. He's an eclectic keeper, but um, yeah, man, I was just like, I would just absorb and sponge it all in. And, and it felt like this subculture within reptiles that had been slept on. And I was just like finding this diamond in the rough that nobody was seeing. I was like, nobody sees these things. Like this is the most exciting discovery that nobody cares about in my opinion. And it's not like a discovery. I meant like I'm discovering them, but uh, yeah, that just snowballed, man. It was just, it was game over, you know? And along the way I dabbled in like Amazon tree boas and humerals boas. And did you have uh, an awesome collection right now too? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's uh I'd say 85% carpet pythons and then you know like a a pair of corns, a pair of crebos, a pair of womas, some apodora, a chondro, a couple the geckos. My female actually just shed uh the other day my big girl. So I'm going to pre prefollicular? She got Uh married? I don't think so. I think it was like a a post sort of like winter weird shed gotcha. and i've been throwing the mail in for the last month and then uh, she went into shed and i to me if anything that is a result of the mail going because she hadn't fed in a month and a half because i was just kind of giving them a break um i don't know they're Dude, at that, least a pair crazy. and they're comfortable Give, giving them a month and a half off of food and keeping them together i was they gonna very say well can eat each other that's awesome that they that they like each other and then now after talking with Ryan Young, he's like, well, I kind of do the opposite thing with my endo stuff. He's like, so I separate feed, give him a couple days of pair. And I was like, you do that with Same. these two. He's like, yeah. I was like, all right, cool. Yeah. So now I'm, now I'm doing that. I, I think I gave him five weeks with no food and uh, they're all right. They're cool. Have you ever uh, had any like dicey situations with pairing those? Nah. Which is huge. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. You know, Not I'm sure, them. you know, I'm sure that the, you know, the, the bad stuff can happen and they can definitely eat each other. And I'm wondering if it's one of those things that have happened in the past that we tend to like, you know, maximize, right? Like, well, or, or, if, you, or is it, if you talk to Ryan Young, he says it's, he feels it's probably a, a case of uh, a male being missexed as a female or vice versa. Could be. Could okay. Be. Which would make and sense. Ryan, and Ryan, like, Ryan, Ryan Young is the Python King. So I'll listen to anything that dude says just about. And then think about it logically, though. Like most people are starting with sub adult to adult wild caught animals. You know how freaking hard it is to try and sex an apodora of that size that does not want anything to do with you, you, even on a yeah. good day. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I see it happening. You know, it is what it yeah, is. Totally. But if you know that going into it, and you do your due diligence as best you can, and you're there when you pair them. Yeah. And you, you kind of just just nut up. And if anything's gonna happen, it's gonna be in the first 30 seconds. You'll see if it's going wrong. They're very yeah. expressive snakes, you know. I mean, just like retics are with their the the shrugging and the body language they tell you and the 
tail the, the rapid eye movement or lack thereof the tail wagging that's an yeah, amazing during breeding thing. yeah, yeah. That is a lot, very, like with, very with ball cool. pythons. The tail wagging is a good thing, you know. With yeah, with, re, with retakes, you see a female tail wagging and sticking her tail up, you get that male out of there. Yeah, yeah. With like my crebos, if my female's like rattling, like a, I'm like, yeah, she don't want you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so Sorry. we we can we can probably spend hours talking about all your different animals, but for our listeners' mm-hmm. sake, I do want to jump into carpet. So right now. What are you currently keeping as far as like your carpet? You said 85%, 80% of your collection is carpets. What are, what are you keeping as far as like morphs, localities, and, and like what are their, uh, you know, I'm curious if, if there's any that you have that are, you know, quite drastic or different than others in terms of like size or behavior or whatnot. Yeah, so the excluding rough scale pythons and, and green tree pythons, which are still currently recognized as Morelia, which is debatable and a completely separate discussion. Um, the only Morelia that you can get in the States that I don't have are uh, diamonds. I don't have any diamond pythons. The one uh, taxa that is not available in the States over in Oz that's abundant are the uh the southwesterns or the uh the imbricata those okay are, are they among Amazing. the lo- larger of the the locales uh imbricata are not necessarily larger but if you've seen the 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 new more complete carpet python that red gammon range animal that's on Dude, the front yeah that's an imbricata of, okay. of course, the more complete so, chondro that, that that it would be that snake on the cover when you know it was written here in the states. Yeah. Like, they're just taunting us. Yeah, and they deserve to taunt us. I can't even be mad at them. There's there's a lot of variety because there's some population pockets of imbricata where you get some heavy melanin, you get some red, you get some of that yellow. Um, carpets are very very plastic in their generational shift of phenotype based on environment so if you think from an evolutionary spec spectrum the indo-australasian sort of python uh uh migration of evolution as they got into australia and they start spreading out over time the the different environments are different and they sort of to put it simply look a lot like their environment as they occupy different niches so you go into the red center in in the center of australia and and where you find uh, morelia bradley and it's a lot of red sand is there any coincidence why that snake is red probably makes sense so um there's a lot of that going on they 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 seem to match their environment and it's really well demonstrated in what we now know as the the northern um the northern coastals morelia spilota chanii which is a new change based on the new publication so you have what is considered two coastal populations of another a northern and a southern and the northerns are technically from a dna standpoint exactly the same as the jungles which we have historically referred to as morelia spilota chanii so those northern coastals are technically the same as the jungles up there. It's just a rainforest phenotype sort of a deal, but they are distinctly different looking. So we still consider them distinct and different, but with this new DNA analysis, we know better. 
the problem is when all the Australian stuff was coming into the States that wasn't known nor delineated. And so what we have in the States is an amalgam of, of the two. So it's like this third group. So you have your coastals, you have poplin carpets up in New Guinea, you have Darwin's, which are in the most Northern range and very closely related to uh, the New Guinea animals. You have brettles, you have imbricata, you have inlands, you have diamonds, jungles, and then there's little locality variants within that dude i would i would go broke if i went into the carpet because me being a locality freak i would literally want every little dude thank goodness that i haven't yeah like dove into to carpets but the curse that these species spotlights have on me at least and and i don't know about nathan but every single time we have someone on to talk about a snake that i've already already liked right or reptile that i've already liked and then we have a guest on to talk about them like it's the next thing that i'll probably google for the next two weeks and yeah. have to convince myself to not freaking get one <laughs> yeah i know how that he's goes putting it lightly it's the next thing he's hiding from the wife yeah ba- ba- <laughs> basically i mean I'm, I'm about to you know i won't say but you know me and ryan young are talking and we're about to trade a you know sending him a pair of salayers for a pair of snakes that i'm, I'm stoked about even though the snakes are probably going to hate me right off the bat um, uh, i bet you they love you yeah well yeah that, it depends i'm putting i'm putting the warm fuzzies out there for you We'll see. I, I I looked at my my couple helpers that come over. Um, I looked looked at them and I was like, "Hope y'all are ready to get bit." <laughs> yeah, because none, none of my none of my snakes in my garage bite. Like, I, there's I really don't have to worry about getting bit by a snake in my garage. So this it'll be a fun change. But um, yeah, keep you on your toes. Do Do you have a fun or a fun? Do you have a favorite locality or do you have a favorite? I guess carpet python. Uh it's hard man like if we're talking you know favorite morph or favorite species or subspecies those are two different answers um because within carpets you have you have species and subspecies breakdown you have morphs that associate with the various species and subspecies and then you have localities within some assuming that's been maintained record keeping wise and here in the united states we have uh, Brisbane's, which are Southern's, and then we have Rockhamptons, which are like a Northern. Uh, and those lineages have been kept pure. And then uh, I think there's a couple people that might have a few other things that are sort of like uh, under the radar, hush hush, not really big out there. But for the most part, we don't have a ton of like localities outside of that. Really? Other so than... everything's already been kind of crossed into each other. Yeah, I mean, so here in the states we could we could find uh lineages of jungles that are pretty much well preserved old school lineages of pure jungles you can find jungles that might have a question mark or a missing piece of information in there or an undocumented animal yeah something where like one particular animal in the family tree was a stunning animal at a reptile show that was just labeled jungle by some guy who just did it on the side and like that was all the information that was preserved, you know. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean impure or not. That's the thing, though, because like unless you collected these animals off the ground in Australia and then worked it all the way through, you know, everything's up for debate. But setting that, that aside, familiar. Yeah, yeah it, exactly. It, it, it sounds familiar, and I know a lot of we people have a that... lot of similarities in these yeah. two uh, worlds of ours. 
well, I know in the retic world, there's actually someone there. There was a post that was made on the retic nation and, and, and someone made a comment that, you know, retics are soon going to end up being like, uh, carpets in the sense that everyone's just going to like cross localities, not keep track and all that stuff. And I, and I think the damage of that has mostly already been done. I still think that, mm-hmm. I, I think that we still, there, I think there's quite a few of us that like localities enough to make sure that we can separate them. Now I'm talking about from all localities, like the, the Superdorf localities, that mm-hmm. that's a different story. I'm, I'm still a big yeah. believer, whether it's Kalatoa, Karampa, Karumpa, or Madu. Mm-hmm. Damn it. This always happens. Every time I do a finger gesture, balloons come up. <laughs> Son of a bitch. It's, I need we, to get, we I had need a to... thing with Lucas over, over the last year and a half where he would make shapes on the camera and now it's his effects. Now, yeah. That's the effects, <laughs> oh, but... that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I still think those four localities, right? Karumpa, Karapa, Kalatoma, I think they're all the same subspecies that, that, you know, obviously there's not a lot of science and, and people going out and studying retics over in these tiny islands in Indonesia, but in reality, they're, they're the same snakes. Their their islands are literally a rock skip away. Um, mm-hmm. But but I definitely think the the retail community has enough people that are focusing on like Kaiwadi or Salayer or Sulawesi or you know I, I don't think we're gonna go out there and start taking Sulawesis to Salayers and then people are just gonna call them Sulawesis, right? Like, right. I think I think we've fortunately got past that part, but um, yeah, just it sounds a lot like. I mean, there's a lot of similarities with the locality stuff between the two, and I'm wondering. Yeah, and you and you can't import either. No, that that's yeah, exactly for both. Yeah. Um, so, do you think that the like cross locality, like with Morelia and with with carpet pythons, maybe I'm not correct here, but they they have gone through multiple subspecies classifications and changes, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I wonder if it has to like. We didn't, you know, if they all of a sudden changed them when, you know, maybe a couple of localities were, were the same and now they're not, you know, now we have a mutt, whereas before it wasn't. But I want to get your opinion on this because research and science here in the U.S., I believe, my opinion, is it's going down the shitter. Everything is financially driven. There's very little science that's like truly being done. I was listening to a, a Joe Rogan podcast episode where, you know, scientists, she, she laughed, left academia because they, they were wanting her to do these ridiculous things. And now she's an independent researcher, which kudos to her. Cause not a lot of people being an independent researcher, you go broke, like, unless you yeah. write like books. And, and so uh, do you think that there's any like money influence, like for people to do these like subclassifications and like reclassify, like, or, or is this true? Like, do you think the differences currently right now should actually reflect the subspecies or do you think that there's maybe a little bit of of like well they're giving us money to do this so we have to come up with something i think there's a little bit of a little bit of both unfortunately and fortunately i've i've actually recently been listening to um Forrest Galante on his Wild Times podcast, and every once in a while he'll get on a rant about some of that stuff. And one that stood out to me was very similar to that. A lot of the the new research going on and finding these new subspecies are these new folks to the scientific community trying to attach their name to something new and groundbreaking. And that's all it is. Like I, I do believe in a subspecies concept to a degree, but, you know, like 
some of the stuff they they said with the children's pythons and the antiresa all being the same thing i was like you're blind and you've never left your office go burn that paper and shut up i don't even have to have ever visited the continent of australia to know that that's a bunch of malarkey yeah i've bred it i've bred antiresa different i mean they're all different i've seen literally all of them in front of me and not one looks the same like even morphologically there's subtle difference look at the pre and post ocular scales look at where the nasal uh opening is positioned in the scoot on their nose like look at literally every mite nothing they're all different all different they occupy different different little biomes and niches and yeah there might be some overlap but like if they were all the same why would we have so much variation in something that's all the same so is that happening in the carpet python world the carpet python world i feel fortunately has made changes for the right reasons and for pure correction in science i think i think that's that's an uneducated sort of inference based on the last you know 10 years of me paying attention to it the people involved i think their motivations and their research and their work is very genuine and doesn't come from uh, financial ulterior motives like Dr. Warren Booth and, and the folks over at RGI that do a lot of this DNA sequencing. Yeah, it is their business, but like it's also imperative for them to be authentic and transparent in everything they do. So um, I think that's the ultimate way for any sort of uh, endeavor like that to have merit and respect is it to be completely transparent, you know, and be done from a scientific method with all the research possible and snake research is not easy because they are very elusive for a good reason in the wild so right they um, survive this long yeah yeah so i i was impressed with a lot of the the dna analysis and work that was done and and i respect the changes made and i i mean who am i to to say that they're wrong or you know i know differently um, they're all the folks that i've been learning from the last you know, 10 years or so. And, and I, I grew up with the first arrangement of, uh, of Morelia, the, the first complete carpet Python, so to speak, um, have both books and, and learned under the original, you know, names. Like I, you know, I grew up calling pop ones, IJs, you know, and I don't do yeah, that like, anymore. Like, Cause wait, I feel like that's Aaron, more politically Aaron, correct. Aaron Jaya is not a thing anymore. I mean, I don't think so. Because when I when I had my coastal, um, I was looking at other carpets because I liked them, and I was like, "Oh, these are much much more fun than my ball pythons here." And again, I was like a teenager at the time, and and uh, Erin Jaya was one that I was just eyeing and loved. So the snakes themselves are still there, and well, you'll yeah, still see plenty of people <laughs> label them as that. Like Morph Market still calls it that. No, they just blew up the area when they decided to get rid of that name, and just all the snakes are gone. Yeah. To me, I I would think that if I was a native Papuan, uh, you know, resident there, if 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 Erie and Jaya that term was like a an old defunct government related name or something from decades before, and and everyone was now using Papua, I feel like that would be the more respectful term. Now, I don't know if I'm right in that. So yeah, I get IJ is easier to write and say, and it's quick. And but um, I don't know. Maybe I'm too nerdy in that aspect. <laughs> so is there 
you know, there's plenty of drama in the Rita community when it comes to localities and crossing things. Do you find that to be the same in the carpet Python? Like, are there like strict people that like, will will, you know, just bl- put you on blast if you take two different subspecies together? Cause I know they could breed together, right? Yeah, you can, yeah. you could breed any Morelia any to one another right. and, and that's including Chondros and Ruffies. They'll all breed. They're all, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, similar. I, I won't do hybrid pairings. I love looking at them and man, sure. a freaking Carpondro is one of the coolest creatures Beautiful to snake. ever exist. Undeniable. Yeah. Yeah. But it's okay if it's not for you and you don't want to do that, but it's also okay to acknowledge that it's a beautiful snake. Like, let's be oh, yeah, real. That's not, sure. there's no risk of that getting back into the wild and messing right. up a, a native gene pool, right? Which is ultimately what everyone's concern is, is about losing something in its natural state for good yeah. and potentially compromising its existence and making everything skeptical. Yeah, but we're, we're, we're all playing little mini scientists in our garages, in our houses. Right. We're just, we're, you know, we're just trying to create stuff. Right. Well, and I, unless I, you... I think the only example I've seen of it being a problem, uh, as far as I'm aware, is uh, like the retic uh, Timor uh, cross, just because they can look so right. similar that, you know, the person... they're almost the same snake, I, like morphologically of... in the head. Well, well, I've I mean, heard of a can... snake being sold as a retic, but it was a hybrid. Superdorf retic, but it was a it was a hybrid, and then. Yeah. I, but the thing is, is I I could I bet that happens in the wild. They they cross. It's I mean, natural hybrids are a thing. Look at you know gabinos. Exactly. Well, and that's what I was going to ask about the anteresia and the children's pythons. Do you think there's any of that happening naturally? Um, I I. I wouldn't be the best person to ask that. I would have to refresh my geographic understanding of the gene okay. flow of the various populations. It's I, not what we're here to talk about anyway. <laughs> I think they might be isolated enough where it is distinct regionally because Australia does have a lot of these corridors and, and, and natural barriers that prevent gene flow. Um, and that's why we see a lot of even yeah, within Morelia, yeah, isolation. the geography of Australia provides plenty of different barriers. Yeah, yeah. So you'll have, you'll like, there's pockets of Invercata that are isolated. The the brettles are on an island within an island. You know, there's no gene flow into I mean, or look out at the, of. Look at the rough scales, even. Yeah, yeah. The the Northern Territory up there, the Kimberley. That's really yeah. harsh terrain. I mean. It was only recently that roughies were even documented out it just because it was nearly inaccessible before, you know, helicopters could drop you in and, and right. whatnot. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the controversy in the, thing, in the carpet I, python. Yeah. Like with, with mixing localities. I would say it was at a fever pitch probably 10 years ago. And it was at its highest then. And it's just continually declined, I think, as... Uh, as more people have got into it, more people have gotten tired of arguing and fighting. And then the research has changed a little bit recently. Um, and I think, you know, people have just kind of calmed down a little bit more, myself included, because I'm absolutely guilty of being a, sort of like an agro purist initially, because that was kind of how I came up. And then I sort of learned through some misunderstandings and what I was missed, like I was misled on how to interpret things and I didn't understand genetics well and and I, I realized I had a couple crosses but I was like determined to see these projects through so I did that and it kind of forced me to reevaluate like beautiful snake is a beautiful snake there's a time and a place for all these things 
we're not misrepresenting what they are so we can kind of avoid some of these concerns but it was still a very valid concern i just you know after i think 10 years of everybody kind of being up in arms about it i think everybody's just gotten tired of of bitching about it and so you just have you have two camps and both are accepted you have you have the people that like to keep stuff pure and only do like straight coastal projects only do straight brettles projects etc and then you have folks that that cross uh, cross them but they the 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 crossing comes with an end goal in mind like a a really neat uh usually morph driven uh combination of sorts it's not just i'm breeding a brettles to i have this and i have that so let's do it. it they're typically trying to achieve some you know phenotypic polygenic expression that they're trying to aim for. Yeah, yeah. You're either stacking a couple of genes or making a wacky jag or something fun, you know. Um, a wacky so jag. I, I think it's really accepted, especially because, you know, Nick Mutton has been sort of like the vocal driving force for it uh, in the United States, and he's very much a purist, but even he's yeah. lightened up over the years on some of this because at the end of the day, you can trace lineage only so far back because yeah. at a certain point it was either smuggled or there just isn't records. Um, and so you kind of have to take things on faith, even in the best scenario. And so I think a lot of that has kind of come to light and people just lighten up a little bit more. And I think seeing everybody else being a little bit more accepting of like, Hey, a cool snake's a cool snake. It's all good. You know, I think, I think everyone's kind of lightened up a little bit. Hopefully we get there in the retake world and, uh, yeah, Nick Mutton's a cool dude. I've talked to him in the past about retakes, and he finally he got a pair of Slayers from me that um, uh, he, he reached out about Dorf. So I'm excited for him to get his hands on them because the, this clutch looks insane. Yeah, he and Ryan definitely are not just specialists in one thing. They are true snake aficionados. I, I have hesitate to even pigeonhole them in just Python aficionados, even though that's what they specialize in. They also love their bows and colubrids and lizards and ryan loves turtles if you didn't know so like it's yeah it's pretty they're eclectic very eclectic intelligent individuals so yeah so i'm gonna have nathan bring up your instagram and i I, whenever nathan wants and he sees an awesome carpet python i'm gonna have him kind of just address and and i want you to talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. like what it is how old it is all that good stuff and then as he's like after this first one as he's going through other ones what i would like for you to do riley we're gonna kind of multitask here is i want i would love if you could go into your like not condense like two minutes, but I want you to go into your beginner's guide on carpet pythons. Are, are they, you know, what level of keeping are they? What, what temperatures do they need? Um, you know, what, what, what sizes do they get? What morphs are there? Like, I want you to give a beginner's care and info guide on them. Cool. So real quick, what the hell is that? That is a really, really exciting animal that I picked up as, I think, uh, maybe six, seven-month-old hatchling. That is a a striped jungle that was produced from uh, pairing a German jungle line animal to a highlighter line jungle animal, uh, both selectively bred, you know, lines for their bright yellows, clean blacks, over the years, not ever necessarily labeled pure by most people, but you can't necessarily call them impure. It's just all speculated. Like, like we've a been talking about, 
it's <laughs> it's creme de la creme regardless and that that girl happened to be a nice striped animal from the clutch that uh uh jeff clark produced and and let get away i don't think he realized what that girl was that's the coolest jungle i've ever seen and once you said it it came from some german lines it must be their history and eugenics yeah the 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 the, the one sorry i'd be like i feel like i I can always drop too soon for that but oh man Um, yeah the the german line stuff in carpets is uh german jungles is one of those like well-known uh very selectively bred for top quality stuff so uh, lucas i get good. a pass on this i'm half of my family's jewish <laughs> no not dude there's no that's just that's it's comedy at its finest man i'm so happy that that you i, I just that. saw you facepalm i'm just like oh. no i'm i'm laughing um <laughs> uh, so, so that girl there is I, I think she's going on three years old right now so what is it it's 20 24 now so yeah, she's a 21 hatch animal. Um, I took that photo while cleaning a few days ago. So this relatively uh, current, and she takes you know medium rats for me every two three weeks, depending time of year and what I'm doing. Unless it's winter, and then right now she's not eating at all because I'm a mean mean snake keeper like that. Um, but for the most part, from baby to adult with my carpet pythons, I've run a very similar husbandry routine that I sort of based off of what I grew up learning as sort of standard middle of the road basic python husbandry, which is a hot it, spot it between. Is, it, it is pretty basic. Like most most pythons across the world will survive in the same temperature range. Yeah. And carpets have been been excellent at showing what we in the Morelli community like to term uh, resilience to keeper error. And it's not so much keeper error, it's vari- variation in husbandry, in my opinion. Because um, you can, you know, you can have a, a light go out and be like, I don't have time to replace it for a day or two, and they're fine. Um, you know, you skip a couple weeks on food, they're fine all these things are very resilient and hardy but regardless uh ideally a hot spot between 84 88 is great um, give or take a couple degrees depending on how the ambient air temperature goes and then you know the the cool end of that thermal gradient can go as low as 70 degrees pretty much year round and they're kind of fine with it especially if they can warm up during the day you get a lot more activity with them when you give them that gradient because it kind of forces them to go back and forth. Um, really, I, I notice a difference with my retics. So I yeah. I used I used to keep on gradient, and when I used to keep on gradient, they were either plopped on the cold side or plopped on the hot side. And then typically at nighttime, with all retics, if you look at your camera at nighttime, they're, they're cruising all over the place. Doing um, all over, yeah. Yeah, but but since I switched over to just strictly ambient, not a single hotspot exists in my garage. Um, they're way more active. Like, interesting. And, and I guess I guess my theory on it, and kind of my observation just from observing, 
is that thermo regulation requires them to utilize energy in order to do that. And while they are thermo regulating, they're needing to sit on those cooler or hotter sides in order to achieve whatever it is that they're trying to. When you keep an ambient and the ambient just has that, just the increase, the hot point of the day, and then the decrease, they don't have to work and do that unless they're digesting and heating their body up more naturally or they're gravid and heating up more naturally. So I think that that gives them the opportunity to actually be more active all over the enclosure. Hmm. Just a, just a that's theory. Really, that's really interesting because uh, I can totally see carpets adapting to that uh, style of husbandry without skipping a beat. No problem. Don't tell me that because I'll as soon as we hang up, I'll buy one. <laughs> don't, you don't know, um, who was it? Uh, uh, Ryan Young has bred carpets, right? And he keeps everything in freaking ambient. Yeah, and then uh, was it the rodent barn or the bean farm? One of those uh, bean farm, bean farm, and then they sold they 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 did everything on ambient, and they bred like ring pythons and all these other things. And yeah, yeah. I, I I do think if you had the climate for it, uh, if, or you had a room where you could manage it like that, you would have no problem because they're bulletproof, man. They they're so resilient animals and. You know, on the hottest days, uh, when it's like 110 degrees outside, my snake room's like 85, you know, ambient. They're they're usually just sprawled in the middle of the cage. They're just kind of like, eh, this is all right. We'll go to the cool side, maybe sit by the water bowl. But, like, right. they're, they're tough. And then when it's cold, they're out, man. Like, I've got my brettles at the shop right now because I'm cooling them down deep cold. I, they're hitting, like, high 40s, low 50s. But if I pull them out, they're moving, their tongue flicking, they're cold as ice to the touch. But they're that cold. And I wouldn't, I I bet you they would take a meal if I offered them right now. That cold? Yeah, they hit 49 degrees a couple nights ago. Oh, dude, that is bulletproof. Yeah. Like, holy shit. As long as they can warm up for a few hours during the day, I've got them both with uh, overhead uh, heat lamps in the shop. But those are Just... those are Texas winter storm power outage proof animals. I, yeah. I look at oh, any oh, of the species out here in Utah, and I mean, it doesn't surprise me all that much. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, they would, they would be fine. Um, Damn. They're nuts, man. They get real dark, and you can feel it. They're cold, but they'll still come out and tongue flick, and, you know, they'll, they'll go and thermoregulate, and they go hide. Like, the lights only come on for think maybe seven and a half hours and well, real quick, they won't even use you, it all the way before nathan moves on go back to that darwin's albino and how rare are these not as rare as you think um, really so that that dude that snake is so i was gonna say before with the jungle that we were looking at the mm -hmm. the the like one main feature that i like about the the appearance of carpets over you know there's a couple that i like a little bit more of the appearance on carpets as opposed to retics. But one of them is like the thick, like just like black, like in retics, yes. we don't have black. Like we, we don't so, have black like you do in carpets. It's really easy to look at a jungle carpet Python and be like, man, the yellow is insane. But if you don't have good black, the yellow doesn't show up. Yeah. Right. You need the contrast. So it's really easy to produce jungle pipe, jungle carpets with, tons of yellow and yellow tipping and it looks amazing but you don't see much black and then when you see one with like inky jet black like velvety like somebody literally poured like motor oil on it 
it doesn't matter how much yellow is on there and what caliber it is that thing is hot because yeah. the contrast is just that much greater so just to recap hot spots 84 to 88 you know depending on the ambient of the room and typically a cool down into the 70s but even some of them you say you can drop down to even more um you know as yep. as nathan's pulling up another picture let me ask you this are you um what what size range can you expect a jungle carpet to get you know and if you need to break it down to like the different subspecies whatever just for people to get an idea like is this snake for me how big is this snake going to get sure um I can I can kind of give you some averages. I would say average across the board of uh, species and genders is between five and seven feet. And then if you want to split hairs more, males are going to be on the smaller end, um, with some exceptions. Uh, the exceptions being that sometimes males are just about the same size as females if you feed them the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would be in like you know you can have jungles where they're the same size. Popwins definitely the same size, um, but on the bigger end in terms of length, the top three would be a female Brettles python can get close to eight feet. Uh, coastal females have been known to get seven plus feet uh, if fed appropriately. And, and, you know, and, it's, and it's funny when I bought that coastal at the pet store, it had on there 12 to 13 feet. Yeah, yeah. nah. I'm, uh, so I, I made a video that was like, how big do carpet pythons really get? And it's one of my most frequently viewed videos to this day. It just is in circulation. And every once in a while, I'll get an Aussie person hopping on there that's like, well, what about this? I found a, you know, a 3.2 meter. And I'm like, no, you're right. You're totally right. There are some 10 footers out there because I, I kind of made it. This thing is like, they, they don't hit 10 feet. I've never even seen one beyond eight feet. And, and that is true. I've never seen one more than eight feet in person i have seen a photo of my friend scott iper who caught a big 3.1 meter southern coastal with like a freaking tree kangaroo in its belly thing was massive it's its head was as big as my hand right big animal so some of them do get big and every once in a while you'll see a video there was a viral video going around earlier last year of a snake going off of this this roof trellis into some trees and it looked like that. a scrub python with how big it was, but it was it was a it was a coastal from what I could tell. So and you there get was those a, there was someone a, a few years ago, some YouTube uh, creator. I, I wish I remembered who, but went out to Australia and they found a pretty big uh, carpet as well. I wish. So I wish yeah, I, man, some of those those tough animals they're they're resilient, man, and if they can you know live fifteen years, they're gonna get freaking huge out there because they're going to eat some massive stuff regardless of what which subspecies or whatever you're talking about these things can eat like way massive meals i mean you see the oh, videos yeah. from sunshine snake catchers where the thing's hanging from a tree for 12 hours and finally eats a tree possum or whatever like there's just you know you could stuff these things um obviously you can also shorten their lifespan by overfeeding them like anything else but um yeah, man, they're they're wicked. That's that's a very special jungle to me. Um, that, that's an insane. Animal. How could it not be looking like that? Yeah, and she has the backstory. It's like, like, like a jungle that wants to be a diamond. Yeah, so she's got that very unique sort of floret sort of pattern, and it, it definitely translates into her offspring. And I'm hoping to oh, see what sweet. it does paired this year with a banded male. Ooh. I I paired her with a striped male two years ago and got ocelots uh, 
who knew? Interesting. Uh, yeah. So, um, but she is actually a uh, full blood sibling, same clutch, same year, and everything. The very first jungle carpet that I bought, my first sort of big purchase into Morelia from Todd Dyer from one of the the SoCal shows at the Psychotic Exotics booth. He's been a mentor for me for years. At that point, I had already, you know, had a lot of time in his ear, just learning as much as I could. And uh, I bought a female from him, raised her up, and she ended up, you know, producing my founding striped animals and having a couple clutches. I think I, I think I bred her three times. Um, but I, I also got her in that era where I didn't know how to back off the feeding and kind of go easy. And I pushed her to about an eight foot size. And uh, one day I, I think she had some sort of internal organ failure and, and she, you know, she passed away in the enclosure. Yeah. Uh, year it's and a half cool ago. Have this, it's years cool ago. To have this animal is a like full circle moment. back. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. I, I, I was, I was pretty, pretty torn up about losing that animal and i reached out to uh to todd and i was just miserable I was like dude i i fucked up like i think i killed her i think i you know all these years of not knowing better about feeding regimens and things i think it just kind of caught up with her and this and that and i was just like dude i'm so sorry like you know and then uh unbeknownst to me my my wife went uh and was messaging him behind my back trying to see if he could find or she she could find uh an equivalent female you know and at that same time todd was like well i have this girl i'll just send her to you so that's awesome wow see, and that dude, was only a few months right before there. uh only a few months right before there. psychotic exotics disbanded yeah she's she's amazing she's she's made some cool artwork for me um i had a, a very sentimental tiger jag that Todd introduced me to when I first saw his warehouse and she bit me in the forehead and nice. I was like, well, I need to have this snake. And so he's like, okay. <laughs> and, uh, she oh. passed away. So my wife made a, a piece of art, uh, with her. So yeah, man, like carpets are in my blood. I love it. I, and for those of you that, that, you know, haven't talked to Riley, don't know Riley. And, you know, we probably won't spend too much time talking about this, but Riley gets bit by just about everything. He's got stitches and wounds and scars from just about everything but i mean i guess that's what happens yep. when you work with reptiles as much as you do as many animals as you do the exposure that you get them for as long as you do it but what the heck is that animal dude <laughs> that is uh another A super very zebra. proud moment of mine i didn't know, uh, I, didn't so know many ways. I didn't know zebras had a super form yep yep so uh the homozygous form of that uh, genetic expression goes far left field. Instead, it takes a super busy, crazy, busy, hectic pattern and just goes delete. And that's what Jeez. you get. Um, the other side of it, though, and I believe it's probably related to some weakness in the gene and probably also related to some uh, inbreeding is that the, the super zebra has a propensity to produce an animal with a slightly kinked tail. And it could be as simple as like a little, little knuckle or a 90 degree with a nub fold on the end that you got to lance off because otherwise every shed, it will have issues. And I've experienced the spectrum of them. I've produced five or six of them over the last few years. And this girl is a four, actually she'll be five this year, um, a five-year-old female of mine. And it was a goal of mine to, 
to get zebras and produce my own super zebras. And in 2019, I produced a pair of them exactly uh, and kept them. And so not only did I, you know, check that uh, long uh, aimed for, you know, goal off my list, but I did it in an unexpected fashion with this female because uh, she has jet black eyes, which is not a thing uh, with the super zebra trait. It's just not like they have dark eyes, but not like jet black. And then um, she's got a couple weird paradox spots that you can see some light patches and she has a yeah. perfect tail. No kink in her tail. I was going to so, say, you see the tip of the tail. It doesn't look fine. like it got lanced off. Dude, that's huge. Nope. That's awesome. But then so, to the same note, her sibling male brother that I have, he had the whole knuckle when I had to lance off a nub and his eyes are dark, but not jet black. So it's like both spectrum. Okay. Now, okay. So we, we talked about size. So we're, we're generally speaking on the larger end of the scale, seven to nine feet, roughly. Um, and nine, and nine feet is still like very, very, very large, but you know, you're, yeah, you're like, like a, like a, a super old diamond or a really massive brettles Python or maybe a huge Southern coastal, but like, okay. yeah, that one in a million, you're looking at most females seven feet and under. Okay, cool. That that's really re that's a manageable size. So we've covered, um, temperature, we've covered their size, humidity. What 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 are their their needs requirements? Are they are they hypersensitive to over humidity to to too less humidity? Are they pretty sturdy along? It sounds like if they can get down to forty. Yeah, they're pretty resilient, man. It's rare to get a bad shit out of a carpet. Um, up here in Sacramento, we get rather dry winters Dude, and, and summers. Are so nice. Yeah, man. Sorry, they've grown sorry. on me. Every time I produce more, I'm like, I don't get why people don't love these. These are sick. So uh, wait, people don't love coastals as much. Is that like they're the, not the, they're not the, the black child? and yellow flashy jungles? Yeah, yeah, they're so not the as middle child. As, most people see a jungle and that's what they remember first, right? They don't remember yeah. the rest because it's yeah, not black first, and yellow. So you you got to kind of ease them into that, right? And so mm -hmm. most coastals, without morphs, are more of the natural earthy tones: uh, buckskins, tans, browns. You know, sort that, of in though, that realm. Yeah, right? me too. But um, you can really get crazy with coastals, man. For whatever reason, just they seem to have a huge propensity for phenotypic variation. So I, I was a dig and I interrupted you again. So you said the, the humidity around you is in the 40s? At best. Like right now, because it's raining, it's like up in the 60s. And I'm like, holy crap, I've never seen this up here. But oftentimes our humidity is in the teens. And so even with really low humidity here, just a water bowl and low ventilation in an enclosure. If you're raising a baby in a rack, like low ventilation, as long as it's not stagnant air, of course. Um, and usually just a, a decent sized water bowl is enough. They, they tend to get it all off. You might get a little bit on the tail that you just kind of flake off, but, and I don't spray or mist or anything. I, I will run a, a humidifier in my room um, three quarters can, of the year, not they, really during the winter. Can they tolerate 60, 70% humidity? Heck yeah. Jungles okay. love it. Papuans love it. Papuans will nice. soak, man. They're, also, they're the only snakes that will randomly, for no rhyme or reason, you'll have a whole clutch and like two will just be habitual soakers. Love no it. reason. Also, I wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor, Heligai Serpent, because I'm pretty sure that those were Heligai Serpent purchases I saw them on. Yes, they were. Yes, yep. they were. Yep. Yeah, awesome. he makes some cool stuff. We've We've tinkered with all sorts of stuff over the last few years. I've had everything from like the little little T perch that just sticks on the wall to the whole inserts to 
you name it. Sky yeah, high. he he's, he's set, uh some of the uh the the latchable ones, the you know the ones yeah, you can those are really cool. Those are cool. Um yeah. Now <laughs> so so they're pretty humidity tolerant across the board. Um yep. now pay attention to the wording here. What is the carpet python industry standard that is acceptable for cage size? Four by two by two. Four by two by two, and that's for you know any uh, you know female seven foot or less, and any any really most snakes, unless you have one of those monsters. Yeah, yeah, unless you got a freak of nature that's like a, a nine uh, over eight foot or nine foot or something that you fed rabbits to, and for some reason hasn't died before its sixth birthday. Um, yeah, four by two by two is great, and in fact, uh, I would say like if I was setting up. A reptile room from scratch and and had you know spare no expense sort of a thing ideally i would put all females in four by two by twos with the exception of poplin carpets because they're a little bit smaller but it would come down to the individual i think because i do have some that are good size and a four by two by two would be comfortable but males three foot enclosures plenty i keep my males very small and and it's not like a um like a I don't feed them and I starve them. I feed them, you know, just as frequently as other snakes. I just don't push them onto huge meals. And uh, the other thing too is I find when I give my carpets the winter off because I'll do that for babies all the way through adults from end of October to February, you know, whatever. Whenever I decide middle beginning and middle of February, you don't. Usually they don't get a meal unless it's like a struggling baby that, you know, needs help. Um, okay, fair. And so what that does is it kind of puts them on pace for a slow but steady growth. And then, you know, if I'm feeding holdbacks to, you know, this female is eventually going to breed. She's obviously going to get bigger meals than the male. She needs that more. I've had males breed at a year and a half old and like under 300 grams. Awesome. Like uh, little twigs. So next thing is, is what can like someone who gets a, a young, you know, hatchling, you know, established hatchling, um, you know, three, four months and you send them that animal, what, what are you wanting them to keep that animal in? And, and what are they like, what, what should people expect as far as their behaviors and, you know, defensive or nippiness and, you know, in general, are adults also, you know, defensive or prone to biting? you know do they do they need to be pulled out or tapped with a hook like retics do like go i guess start with the beginning part on what do you want them to uh house them in when they get a baby and then what kind of behaviors to expect as a baby all the way to adulthood so uh depending on if they already have snakes and already have a system in place or if this is like sort of a first time or a pet um either put it into uh, a similar equivalent baby rack like it's raised up in i raise my babies in six quart tubs so if you have something like that already going for an existing Python system, slop, slot it right into there and it'll make the transition nice and easy. I always recommend quarantining, even for myself, I'm, I'm human. So, you know, just do your due diligence, always be safe, always quarantine, always do what you can if you can. Um, uh, but yeah, so either a six quart tub or shoe box or something small. Uh, but I've also had folks who are not into the rack game and they'll start them out in the small exoterras 
And if they do that, what I say is just make sure you have a couple hides and you fill in the open volume of space, whether it's like a, like a dead branch with a bunch of little sticks everywhere that kind of just adds visual barriers or you crumple up a bunch of butcher paper and make like a wadded ball of paper or have fake, but whatever you have to do to provide visual barriers. If you're going to put a snake in like an exoterra, one of the like medium lows or small lows or the nanos, um, just make sure they, they feel hidden and snug and kind of caved in a bit um, because they're going to come from my system in a, an enclosed sort of cave in this rack that is dark and secure and they feel safe and it's going to be a new transition. So you want to make that as seamless as possible. And you can do it in PVC, you can do it in glass tanks, you can do it in whatever. If you just know what they're stressed by, which is vulnerability, then you can adjust and adapt regardless of your system. I'm very confident in that, especially if I'm sending an animal that's established and eating, all you have to do is just get it into your routine. And just it might sure not it feel safe right away. Yeah, that's really what it comes down to. Even if you have to make that enclosure look ugly because yeah. it's not fancy and functional, like do it for a week or two. And I guarantee you, once you get that first meal in it, you'll get over the hump. So then what I like to tell people is don't handle it first, get it settled in and make sure it takes a meal for you, whether that's that night or a week later, whatever you want to do. I don't care, but don't start handling it and putting it through new scenarios until you know it's eating and settled in. Eating in there is its first sign that it's accepted its new new arrangement and settings, right? Then you're usually off to the races. It's it's, you know, uh upgrade as as much as you want to as they grow. There's no such thing as too big of an enclosure for a carpet python. If you want to have a vertically oriented uh enclosure or terrestrial, that's fine. Just heat appropriately. They're you know, semi-arboreal, right? They'll they'll climb it if you give them, and they'll stay on the ground if you don't provide it, and they'll use whatever. They're adaptable as can be. They will thrive. But yeah, if you give them a perch and you put their heat up top, they won't touch the floor unless they go down for a drink, go to the bathroom, shed, something like that. They love climbing, especially babies. Um, How nippy so, are they? Like, I mean, even adults. I mean, are carpet pythons an animal that you got to worry about biting you or... Like, don't mean, get me I, wrong. I, like for for most people listening, any like hatchling snake is likely to be scared of this monster that we are. Sure. It, it might yeah. you know nip. It might bite until they realize that we're not going to hurt it. But generally speaking, what is a carpet python's uh, disposition? Honestly, a lot better than the reputation proceeds, and I feel like it's gotten better over time with, you know, better multiple generations further and people who understand how to handle them right. And if I'm being completely honest, every import, every Popwin import farm hatched animal that I've gotten has been an absolute doll, a sweetheart. I've never had a mean one uh, from baby to adult. Um, in fact, what's odd is uh I'll breed farm hatched or or captive bred pop ones that are sweethearts and the babies are just demons. Just the those pop one carpets, just little F1s or or captive bred for whatever reason, they just hit the ground mad. Um but you know, if you're just doing that once a week, like feed, clean, chain water sort of thing, just kind of letting them be, they grow out of it like anything else. Mm -hmm. Um but you know, just as much as like bearded dragons have crazy personalities, so do these. So I I've got a few that admittedly have a mean streak in them um, i'd say it's probably one in 15 that is like that that is a challenge to break of that 
that being said, I bought um, my female zebra at already a year and a half, maybe two years old. And uh, I nicknamed her Palm Fighter before I kind of had a feel for her because she literally like would just turn from a dead still and just open mouth and hit me in the palm wide open, all rows of teeth in the palm two separate times. <laughs> And it hurt and it really sucked. And I was like, not down with that. And so I, I made a point to just handle her. And now I don't even use a hook with her. So um, to that tune, I would say the majority of my carpet pythons, I don't use a hook with um, unless I've got food thawing or it's after like 6.30. After 6.30 and lights out, I don't even change waters, dude. So Those like things are heat-seeking missiles. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you, you can kind of get, get away with it with some of them, you know, you kind of have your ones that are docile and would never do that. But even then at night, you just want to make sure they're like not actively cruising right by the water. Cause you're a heat signature at night. You're fair game. I don't care how well they know you. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like if I come home late and I'm like, dang it, I wanted to get cleaning done and the lights are out of the snake room. It's like, well, that's uh that's a tomorrow problem because yeah. I am not dealing with that i tried that enough times to know that you know pushing off water cleaning tonight is a good way to just bleed all over the place so yeah cool. they uh they're defensive i would say they're not they're, they're not aggressive they're nervous and at night they have very significant uh food drive I, I spend enough time spot cleaning babies and just like picking them up by hand and not using a hook and letting them freak out or poop or bite or whatever. See, that's why I'm like, that's probably why I get bit so much is because I'm habituated to every year for the last nine, 10 years, raising up babies that that's all they know how to do. And I just kind of let them, let them do it. And then they, they either grow out of it or they don't. And, and I just kind of let it ride. And um, the majority of the time, by the time they go off to a customer, they're, They've already figured out that I'm not there to hurt them. Um, they've had some some experiences that are at least neutral uh, in their memory bank of sort of positive or negative experiences. And, you know, I just try to yeah. let them experience it. If they've got to sit in my hand and just nail me like five times before they stop and realize it, and we've got to do that a couple of weeks, like, so be it, you know? Uh, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure when they're you babies, have to be it willing doesn't hurt. To... Sorry. It, Sorry. Yeah. As babies, it's minimal. You almost don't feel it. So, and that—that's the perfect time to, you know, be putting in that time to desensitize yeah. and habituate that animal. Yeah, uh, we we were pulling up some of your animals and obviously wanted to share your YouTube channel. Uh, but that that banner that you have—can you tell me a little bit more about that animal? <laughs> yeah. So that is my male, uh, Brettles Python, when he was about two and a half, three years old. That's really when a lot of carpets color just shines, man, that two to Dude, three year window. Popping. And, uh, and that particular photograph was taken about five, five years ago, four or five years ago. Um, a buddy of mine uh, at the time, he and I were very, very obsessed with uh, shooting on black glass with strobes and a backdrop. And so he had this like $400 piece of, black glass and he would drive it up from the bay area and we'd literally deconstruct my entire kitchen and set up a a, a photo studio in there every couple of weeks and 
That's awesome. And just spend the day taking photos on that piece of glass and just kind of learning how to work with the camera and how the the light bounces affects imagery and, and learning about you know photoshopping tiny little pixels of hairs off of everything that's right so dude that, that's the big part <laughs> with, the, with the black background dude yes. that, even you see glasses, every speck glass is even more so than just like the the black background you put like in a light box so i could imagine yeah. um yeah I, I there's wanted... a reason why i don't do that anymore <laughs> right um, I wanted to say something about your YouTube page. If if you guys are, are listeners to the Retake Lounge, and even if like carpet pythons isn't your bread and butter, he's got so many other animals. Um, Riley, I, and I, I, I mean this like sincerely and genuinely, you have one of, for me, one of the best YouTube channels out there because you don't get fancy with it. You don't showboat. You don't do a bunch of things, but your your videos are so damn educational and provide so much information on multiple species and you're just real to the camera. Um, and, and you're, you're not doing it in a way that's misrepresenting the love and passion that we have. Like some people, you know, they, they like to do this thing in front of their snake's face and, you know, or, or free handle venomous snakes. Right. Um, so, you know, I can go into the, the, the downfall of the venomous community here probably in the next <laughs> few years because of all the stupid stuff that's happening. But I just wanted to give you a kudos. I saw that you you know, you got a good subscriber base, but that, that number needs to be tripled at least. Um, I appreciate that. You, you got a great channel. Um, and, and what's awesome about your, your videos too, is they're, they're short, they're sweet. It's, it's like the good classic YouTube days. Right, where where videos are you know seven to fifteen minutes long of good snake content and information, it's just a good channel. Yeah, realistic. I appreciate it. Realistic uh, expectations of like, you know, what reptile keeping is like, what keeping Morelia is like. It's it's great. I I believe I was introduced to you and and maybe even Lucas too through Brian Cusco back. Yeah. 2019 2020 when he was doing some of those pandemic streams uh when everyone was locked down yeah. and kind of getting together i think that's where i did first meet him um yeah, yeah. but yeah Seems um, so far back <laughs> i know right like yeah, it is well, but it isn't nice. but it also right. is it, it's kind of like a separate era of our existence you know Mm-hmm. Dude, I, like literally, like I think by the time that we're all like in our fifties, we will have compartmentalized COVID time, and it was a really mm-hmm. weird time. Mm-hmm. But um, before we close out, Riley, any other things that you feel like you want to share about carpets for people that you know are again, we're, we're a retic based community, so you know, speaking to people that don't know too much about carpets or in general, anything else that we haven't covered that you want to talk about? I have one more question as well. Cool. Yeah. Um, you know, if you if you're looking to find your species and you haven't found it yet, give them a shot because you know, without inputting my bias in there too much, they kind of are like a middle of the road size, temperament, demeanor snake. I wouldn't say they're necessarily fresh into snake beginners, but I've also set fresh into snake beginners up with them and they're doing great um they're not necessarily difficult to keep or understand but they can present a few challenges behaviorally if you get one that you're not super handleable with or you know just maybe it wasn't the best 
intro, but like you can always overcome that, no problem. And as far as a learning curve, they're very forgiving. So to me, there is a carpet python out there for everyone. Um, if you like the natural earthy stuff, Popwin carpets can still be imported. Um, so you can verifiably with 100% certainty know that you're getting a pure Popwin carpet python still. And people are breeding pure lines like myself and, and there are morphs and everything. So there's a little bit for everyone. You can, you can do the Dr. Frankenstein morph stuff and have endless amounts of fun, or you can do some pure stuff, some line breeding, some, some very isolated projects and, and make a wonderful name for yourself and just appreciating what these snakes have to offer. And I mean it, there's literally no two carpet pythons that look the same in a clutch endless variety so you know while everybody goes on their reptile journey sort of exploring is this species right for me is this not and and we sort of hear stereotypes and 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 what the general consensus is out there i encourage people to challenge some of those status quos and stereotypes because you know it may not be for you but at least you should try it but on the off chance it is for you how bummed would you be if you never gave it a shot because you heard uh, a rumor that they were overly large and aggressive? Yeah. And it just yeah. isn't the case. I, I find them to be very rewarding. It's yeah. a big reason why when I uh, was getting into larger species of snakes after ball pythons that I, I went with a boa. And I feel like I would have been more prepared for retics had I just nutted up and gone for morelia there's a lot there's a lot to be said man i've talked at length with you know folks like garrett hartle about the similarities of them especially when it comes to super dwarf stuff mm -hmm. now granted i would say super dwarfs even at their smallest a female is still like a longer built mm -hmm. animal but they're really not far off behaviorally a retic is a different animal they're they think different they behave different in their body language communicates differently but you know if you can handle a retic a carpet pythons of walking oh carpet. yeah i i really like and i and i say this like considering that you know they're they're not like you know they're a snake that like you you if you keep them as babies you might get nipped and things like that like they're not they're not like kid proof yeah. but i really do think they are the perfect python they're not overly I big. I rarely get bit by adults. Rarely they're, get bit by adults. They're, they're not overly big. They're not boring and small. They're active and move around when you have them up. And their color spectrums and the morphs and everything that they have are phenomenal. And the best part about them, dude, and I didn't realize this until a few months ago, is they are affordable. Like they are yeah. extremely, and, and maybe I'm biased because I, I, you know, I'm coming from Green Tree Pythons and, and Superdorf and Locality retakes, right? So maybe I'm a little biased, but you know, you can find a beaut, like drop dead gorgeous carpet python for $200. I could put one in your hands and only set you back a hundred bucks. And it, in, in a couple of years, it would literally look like a prize specimen that you picked off, picked up off the ground off of, you know, somewhere <laughs> in Australia. I mean, I, you know, I get very jaded when I'm going for a goal in a clutch, right? And I'm, I'm sifting through the babies and I'm just checking on them. And every once in a while, I'll just remind myself to take the time and just inspect each one, even spend as much time on the low end animals as the high end ones. And so, you know, I'll, I'll go drool over an exanic tiger 
but then I'll go down a few bins and there's a, a coastal male that is not striped and based on his colors is probably not carrying any of the exanic traits. It's like the quote unquote least desirable in the clutch, right? And I'll pull them out and I'll be like, this thing is going to be a knockout when it's bigger. All of this olive green gray is going to be outlined in black fish netting. You're going to have this buckskin slash bone white pattern that's just breaking it all up everywhere. It's outlined in black ink. And then you have white creeping up from the belly. And it's going to be repeated across this six foot alternating pattern that's going to just blow your mind in the small spectrum and across the entire animal. And on top of that, Every animal's head stamp is like a, a defined piece of art from you can get numbers to like the number two or number sevens or number threes or like angry faces or smiley faces or oh faces Dude, I love or that like, about them. like symmetrical six point stars, you know, like everything, dude. Like they're great. It's, what, what more could you ask for? man? <laughs> no, they, they, they really are the perfect Python. I, I've, I've said that for a while, but they, they, you know, they, they check nearly every box off, but Nathan, I know you had a question before we tune out. Well, and it, it kind of goes along with some of the wrap up stuff. Uh, if someone's looking to, you know, do their research, get into carpets the proper way, what are a few, uh, you know, just pieces of literature or, you know, just other, other avenues they can, uh, go to, to research these pythons. I, I know the more, uh, complete chondro is going to be probably the best place to start, but is there anything else that you would recommend? Yeah, there's um, quite a few great books on uh, Australian reptiles that kind of don't necessarily focus on carpets entirely. But when you, you kind of browse through books that go through Australian herpetofauna, it kind of gives you a sense overall of like, what these things endure and experience and that they're all kind of built for these similar levels of harshness from the geckos to the frogs to the monitors to the, the spiders but obviously the more complete carpet python is like the more recent um, publication and it's got some of the new taxon taxonomic changes but yeah that one um, oh i said chondro my bad yeah whatever it's all the same um <laughs> we're splitting hairs anyway aren't we um uh there's there's quite a few smaller publications from uh scott and ty iper that do uh nature to you uh over in australia they've got some snake and frog and venomous books and stuff and so they they love their carpet pythons as well so they get brought up in in a lot of the snakes of australia books and things like that so there's a few written publications like that and then um in the thread of uh, Morelia Python Radio going into their 13th year this year, Eric Burke has meticulously cataloged and copied and saved everything he could find in any digital or written form over the last 20 years. And he's put together a beautiful website, uh, MoreliaPythonRadio.com, I believe is the domain. I think if you Google it, you'll get to it either way. But he really spent a lot of time uh, breaking down some of the projects some of the lineages some of the subspecies he's got range maps in there he's really he's kind of the epitome of like the uber nerd because he's like ascended into oh yeah I kept all of them i've read everything now i must go see all of them in the wild sort of thing and his collection is reducing it's his number really of australians cool. is growing 
so he's yeah he's like transcending into this next level um so that's a fantastic website to go to to get a lot of resources and he links a lot of resources outwardly from there as well I would imagine he links like podcast episodes that yep. they've done as well, which yep. if, you got if you're 12 just years of that, yeah, if you're that audiobook person, I, that would be probably my first suggestion. I, That's what got me interested is go listen right. to Morelia Python radio and listen they, to those two just geek out about, you know, carpets for a while. Yeah. And, yeah. There, and one thing I will say about NPR and the just carpet Python community in general, um, NPR had me on probably, I don't know, four to six months back or so. Uh, that was about, a great episode, by to, the way. It was really good. Thanks. Yeah, to, it was to, awesome. Talk, to talk about retakes and the dozens and dozens um, of, of messages from people in the Morelia community that reached out, said positive things. I got invited to go to Texas Carpet Fest uh, this, you know, in 2023, and I went and I just phenomenal community. That that I got yeah, to man. meet in person, that reached out to me. Um, I, right now, I'm ten out of ten. Recommend the 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 Carpet Python community. They've been pretty cool. That that feels good to hear that because I know personally, you know, seven to ten years ago, there were a lot of public feelings that we were kind of a bunch of pompous a holes. And <laughs> granted, that coincides with all of the infighting about purity versus crossing. So I'm, I'm sure it was deserved then. Um, but yeah, man, Eric, and a lot of the guys uh, that started that whole circle out in, in Maryland, um, you know, 12 years ago, or whatever it was, Howard Redding and, and Eric Kohler, and all those guys, like, they've had their ups and downs, and, and they've they've kind of rifted apart and come back together at most recent carpet fest, but it's grown into a thing where there's like a chapter all over the country. There's one in the UK and then there's also one in Australia prior to, you know, COVID slowing things down. And it's just a testament to, you know, um, Eric and Owen and the rest of those guys desire to get out from behind the, the keyboard and the computer screens and actually meet people face to face and have some of these discussions and, and, you know, realize that we're all the same, but different. And, and we're just people and, and to kind of build that. And I don't think he had any idea, like how significant that was going to be in the long run. Um, because like, I've flown out to Philly for carpet fest and stayed at Eric's house uh, a couple of years ago. And it was like a dream come true. You know, it was like more exciting to me than a, an international trip. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I got to hold uh, a, a young Apodora for the first time there. I, I, one of Eric's jungles, like, food wrapped my hand, and I just like let him do it, and kept going around the room, like, so excited to see everything. I was like <laughs> being chewed on, and just like, this is the happiest thing. So, like, yeah, man, it's uh, it's cool. It's a good, it's a good community, and I think with everybody kind of nowadays realizing that. They want to explore new avenues of reptile keeping in different species. I think it's a great time for the yeah maybe maybe dabble and um, if you want to dabble. I launched my my website yesterday, so Riley's Reptiles is dot com. I did see that. Congrats! So, yeah, thanks, man. Uh, big shout out to uh, Adler for putting he, that together. So yeah, he's doing my site as well. I just I've been procrastinating on my part with getting with him to put the final pieces together, but I'm excited for that. Yeah, man, it's cool. So I'm excited to have like a legit website with a legit domain that I can, 
you know, you can go up there, you can see my breeders, you can see the animals, it links to the YouTube. Um, I have a merch store on Teespring and it doesn't link with the website yet. So we're either going to see if we can figure out how to link those two, or I'll just start over and build a new one through the site because it has, yeah. um, you know, certain add-ons that I can do. But yeah, I, I spent about a month uh, photographing all the animals in, in light tents waiting for them to shed and waiting for some you know to that, cooperate. That's, that's <laughs> it's, it's, see, that's where size is nice compared to retakes because if I put a page with my breeders on there, oh, dude. I, can't, I can't take pictures of my freaking I can't 13, even imagine my 13 foot slayer. You could yeah. if you had the tent I have. I mean, I, yeah, but you a garage? That, you, you think, yeah, you think that, you think, no, that, this thing's like, Four and a half square Re retakes don't stand Damn. still, dude. They don't no, still. I got one of those 32 inch cubes, and uh, yeah, some of my snakes made that look small. The Kribos, they're like, Yeah, no, nah, we don't do that. Sorry, <laughs> exactly. But, well, um, yeah, everyone, I mean, go on to Riley's website, that'll lead you to everything. But make sure you're subscribed to his YouTube, following his Instagram. Uh, Riley, anything else you want to leave us with? Yeah, I would say um, if you were worried about me talking about bites more, I'm glad we have, you know, didn't make it about a big scary bite thing because I do get bit, but it's usually by lizards. No, it's They're by monitors. I know. You, you just had your thumb knot on a few months ago. Yeah, so my thumb was filleted like a, a nice juicy steak in October. And uh, that was fun. That's it, about as far down as it goes before I feel like the skin on top is about to split open. Literally, that um, doctor, like, 100% needed stitches. And the dude at the hospital was like, eh, you'll be fine. <laughs> I would have at least been happy with some local anesthetic before they started digging and cleaning it. But what am I going to say? I'm not a doctor. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, lizards cause way more, like, damaging snake bites. I got a rhino iguana bite to the forearm that earned me six stitches and you know but at the same time i've been popped in the the temple by a scrub i've been hit in the eyebrow nose forehead nose chin cheek by various carpet pythons and they don't even leave a mark usually mm -hmm. um you know it's it's really the the reaction of you making it something bigger in your head and then flinching and pulling away That's, and yeah Breaking you, teeth and running your finger along the whole jaw, and yeah, you make it worse. Any any way, any so. any snake bite can be exponentially worse if you have that knee jerk reaction. Which I'm, you know, I I haven't been bit a lot, so I still have that reaction at times, and you know, I, I need to need to get over it. That's for sure. I think I forced myself to to get over it with uh, a lot of baby Brazilian rainbow boas because they're little little bitey things as they're first born. <laughs> yes, and I've. Are. I produced oh, oh well over a hundred of those over the last decade, and the first time I took one and it bit me, and I flinched, and the thing went flying backwards across the room <laughs> and landed on my bed. It landed on my bed, so it was fine. The first time I did that, I was like, "Oh, I don't like that. I don't want to. I don't want to do that." So I sort of forced myself to like take it, don't flinch, and and now it's probably gone too far on on the spectrum where I, I probably should flinch a little bit more in some cases. King Cobra's coming at you. You're like, hug me. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I've worked around crocodilians. I've worked around a lot of venomous. Um, 
obviously very safely with with hooks and and two people teams and all the safety protocols in place and anti-venom on hand and all that good stuff but um, yeah i take liberties when i know i can Uh, when it's with crocodilians and venomous there are no liberties taken because i you just you should be very zoned and professional in that and very focused on the task at hand um but with carpet pythons man i i just want to be hands-on with them i want to i like when they go back into their enclosure running the whole body through my hand and they come back around and and you can just gently nudge their face back in and they're just really really tolerant snakes man they're they're calm animals the ones i held that bill man they just they're super just yeah. they had that calm demeanor when you had them out. They move slowly, but they're continuously moving and they're looking around and 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 yeah, they're 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 great. But um, Riley, it was an absolute awesome episode. It was awesome having you on. Um, we'll, we'll dude, you're you're such a wealth wealth of knowledge. We'll absolutely have you on again for for yeah. multiple topics. And you know, honestly, just it, to talk about the zoo is would right. be a two hour long episode. I'm exactly. Sure. Um, yeah. And I would I would love to have you on once you successfully hit those apodoras. Um, that's gonna be <laughs> so crossed. freaking amazing. Yeah, we're rooting for you. Um, Fingers crossed, man. But yeah, man, we'll we'll let you go. Um, and uh, guys, again, if you enjoyed the episode, go ahead and comment. Leave you know something for Riley to respond to. Um, Riley, we're going to kick you out of here and do our wrap up, but it was great having you on, man. Thanks guys. I've got work in the morning, so I will, uh, I'll be wrapping up. I appreciate y'all having me on. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. It's an honor to, uh, to be on this podcast. I remember when you guys launched it, I was really excited to see what you guys have done with it. And I blinked and you're already into the 70 plus episodes. So (laughs) it's wild. um, It is. Yeah, man. Keep up the great work. Kudos to you guys. Hats off. I love seeing where you're going with it. Um, I had a great time, man. Really enjoyed it. Likewise, man. Thanks again. Thank you both. Talk to you guys soon. See you, Riley. All right. Great episode. Like like you said, man, we we could go on and on and on. Just a total treasure chest of just information regarding any species that that guy has touched. Yeah, and there, there's there's like a dozen phenomenal people that we could have had on for carpet pythons. Oh, but yeah, I, I've seen I've seen enough of the interviews that Riley has done in his YouTube channel, and and I think that this episode and the way that it went, kind of like in our minds, like this is why I wanted to, you know, we wanted to have Riley on. Like Riley is just a great dude to talk to. Yeah, so I. I have to shout out Brian Cusco. I mean, that that's who got both Lucas and I face to face with Riley the first time got us chatting. Um, you know, it, it's, it's cool to have those people in, in the industry that are uh, making those connections and, you know, building community. So thank you, Brian. Yeah, yeah guys. Um, if you like this episode, like it, if you, like I mentioned, want to drop some comments down below and as always to our Patreon members that are supporting us monthly. Thank you so much. We love you guys. We had a great zoom call the night before we recorded this. Uh, I think it was our biggest one yet with a few new member and new faces on there. You know, we meet every other Friday for about an hour to an hour, 15, maybe sometimes it gets, you know, to an hour 30, we have a great time and it's not like anything educational. We're just a bunch of people like-minded loving reptiles that just meet up on zoom and have a great conversation. So if you want to do that at the lowest, only five bucks a month. Um, and you can visit us at the Patreon or patreon.com forward slash the retake lounge. But Nate, you got anything else? 
no, I'm excited for next week. I look forward to seeing you on the next one, Lucas. Yep. See you guys. Later.